You are listening to the Recorded Internet Broadcast, a.k.a. The Rib. Today, we're going to be talking about species and speciesism. I'm Tim. And I'm Jared. And we're going to start by describing what a species is and what speciesism is and some of their histories. And we're going to try to answer some discussion questions related to the two of them. As always, you can find links to references and resources in the show notes or on our website at recordedinternetbroadcast.com. Enjoy the show. So we'll start off with defining speciesism. It's a pretty awkward term. I don't know how many people actually know what it is. And we're just going to use the Wikipedia definition. So speciesism is the differing treatment or moral consideration of individuals based on their species membership. In short, it is the prejudice or discrimination based on species. This involves treating members of one species as morally more important than members of other species in the context of their similar interests. But before we get too into that, Tim, what is a species? Yeah. Um, I already have one question based on that definition about discriminating between species. Okay. So I have a question for you. Let's say that you wanted to bake bread and you had a bowl with some flour in it and some water in it and you wanted to make dough. Would you add to this bowl Saccharomyces cerevisiae or Branta canadensis? It's an or. I have to pick one of them to add. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, interesting. Uh, which one of those is yeast? Uh, Saccharomyces is yeast. Okay. I would probably put Saccharomyces in it, but I guess for the purpose of being thorough, what is the other one? Branta canadensis. Yeah. What is that? Uh, that's a Canadian goose. That's a Canadian goose. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> I, I think if I was making bread, I would choose to put the yeast in and not the goose. So would you discriminate between the yeast and the geese? I would. I would. I would make a judgment call on which one was better for bread. I see. Okay. That was just an immediate question that I had based on the definition of speciesism. Hmm. Yeah, but so you asked me, what is a species? And I'm sure that everyone's heard the word species before and has heard some definition of what a species is when being taught biology at some point in their life. So at a basic level, a species is a way to categorize certain organisms. And there are different levels of categorization, like animals and plants and bacteria, and then subcategorizations of those, like uh, mammals and reptiles and birds and that sort of thing. And the lowest level of categorization that is defined is a species. And the way that that categorization is defined biologically is a group of organisms that's able to reproduce with each other. So like as a sort of contrived example, a human is not able to reproduce with a dandelion. That's like a, a pretty extreme example, I would say. I mean, there's just no like anatomical way to do it. <laughs> but you could think of um, like species that a human might be able to attempt to produce with, but there would be no way to produce a viable offspring from that. Like you wouldn't produce an embryo and a child. And so that's sort of like the classical definition of species, organisms that can reproduce and produce a viable offspring. Okay, so it sounds like species is just like a categorization system that people came up with, but... I'm curious, like, what is the point of that system? I think it's sort of up for debate about why you need systems of classification. But the classification system that we do have was proposed and first written about and described for many species by a Swedish professor called Carl Linnaeus. He was a student, a graduate student, and during some trip that he was on in Lapland, he made the remark, quote, if I only knew how many teeth and what kind every animal had, and how many teats and where they were placed, I should be able to work out a perfectly natural system for the arrangement of all quadrupeds. And so he was saying that if he saw the jawbones and where the, the mammary tissues are on every animal, he could discover or define, I suppose, how each of those animals originated from each other or branched off from each other in sort of a evolutionary tree. And almost all of the work of what's called taxonomy, and taxonomy is this way that species and the other organizational things like families and orders and kingdoms are defined. 
comes from the work of Carl Linnaeus. It's all sort of built upon that and like added to over the past 300 years. Was Linnaeus around the same time or after or before Darwin? Did he know that these creatures had evolved from each other? Or was he in the dark about that one? Darwin came about 100 years after Linnaeus. Wow. So I don't think that Linnaeus, or I don't know. I don't know enough about the scientific history of that time to know what people thought about what Darwin called the origin of species. Yeah, I just don't know. I don't know what they thought back then. Yeah, it's interesting that he would think to try to place them on a tree or even arrange them in general. I wonder if that helped Darwin come up with some of his ideas around some of that stuff. It seems like even just having an ordering or being able to like categorize by some of those traits that you mentioned could be helpful for that. Yeah, I agree. You can look around the world and see that different species, different organisms look similar to each other and, and act similar to each other. And so if you didn't interpret that the way that Darwin did, that they had a common ancestor, then how would you account for those similarities? And so I don't know how Linnaeus accounted for those similarities. Probably with God, you know. It's certainly very likely, yeah. 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 So one interesting example of how species are defined is a mule. And a mule is a cross between a male donkey and a female horse. And so according to the classic de definition, a mule is not a species because it can't reproduce like among among its own population. Yeah, that's pretty nutty. It's just an example of sort of the limitation of that way of classifying it. The classification based on reproduction. Right, yeah. I feel like I've also heard about, uh, is there a liger? Is that a real thing? There is a liger. There's also a tigon. The tigon just sounds like some weird shape. It's interesting that it would come up with a different animal, the, the tigon versus the liger. Yeah, for all of those hybrids, it matters in terms of what the outcome is, whether the male or female is the, the like one or the other, basically. Hmm. It's the same with a mule as well. I learned this while doing some research this week. The opposite of the male and the female that I described for a mule is called a hinny, H-I-N-N-Y. I don't really, I don't, that's a weird name. I feel like the Tigon Liger, like those aren't great words, but they, they make sense to me. And then the hinny, even really the mule, those are, those are both. So you think they should be called a, a, a dorse and a honky? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. We'll call mules honkies from now on. Um, are you satisfied with this definition of species? I don't have a specific better one. We've discussed this at certain points, and you've said that now what's often does to determine species is, is um, what is the name? Oh, no. DNA. Sequence. Are you referring to DNA? They, sequ <laughs> they, they sequence their, the genome of the animal, and then... Ah, uh, the genome, yes. Yeah, and then compare it. And... That seems like a very different categorization of species to me. Sure, that's definitely true. I wouldn't describe it as very different. It's a different approach that arrives at pretty similar results, but definitely with some differences. So the way that species were defined originally, the very first thing was just from morphology, which is the structure of the animal, like how it looks, how many legs it has, and, and so on. Sort of the way that Carl Linnaeus was describing it. And then... Another thing that was used was the ecological niche that the organism resided in. So you could sort of tell that if two things, you know, that lived in one foot wide puddles of muddy water in different parts of the world, they might be similar or they might not be. But that information was used to categorize them early on. And so from just the morphology and the ecological niche, you could find out a lot about the relationship between species. But like you mentioned, we now have this other tool, which we believe to be at the moment, the most exact tool, which is DNA sequencing. And in the evolutionary model, half of the DNA from the mother and father of any organism is passed on to their child. And so there should be a constant line of DNA genealogy for all species. And so 
because DNA is a more exact measurement than something like what scientists would call a more gross measurement, meaning like a, a larger, harder to measure sort of thing like morphology, you can usually find out exactly who an organism's ancestors were based on their DNA. And you can even find out things like how many millions of years ago two species had a common ancestor. That's that's pretty fascinating. I was just thinking about the common ancestor thing as you were saying that, and I'm curious about, you know, when you have those kinds of splits in this tree of sorts, is the way that it, it's understood as being a different species still when it can't reproduce with the original one and have viable offspring? Or is there some level that's just considered a mutation and then there's some level that's considered to be, oh, no, now you're a, your own species? For animals, my understanding is yes. The definition of reproductive capability is still used as the definition of species. It's quite a bit different for other kingdoms of life, like for plants and bacteria, for example. A lot of plants can be produced as hybrids of two different species that can then reproduce. So sort of like the way that the mule is produced, but it would be as if the mule was also fertile and could make more mules. Like there's plants that can be created as a hybrid, but then make more of that plant by like reproducing with its own pollen. And then in bacteria, it's totally complicated. It's sort of as if the definition of species was erroneously extended to the kingdom of bacteria. Because for one thing, bacteria reproduce asexually. They just divide. They just copy themselves, which we might do someday, but we're not doing yet. So you've definitely heard of some bacterial species like E. coli, uh, Streptococcus pneumoniae, uh, Listeria. These are genus and species name of bacteria. But because these bacteria can divide on their own and also are very good at transferring genes between individuals after they have divided, it's called horizontal gene transfer. There's these like little pieces of DNA called plasmids that are separate from the genome of the bacteria that can be just sort of uh, sent between bacterial cells in whatever place they're living. So people have, have struggled to define what a bacterial species is. And I've read some papers about it where people try to define what they call the core genome of a bacterial species where they're like, you know, we collected 100 isolates of streptococcus infections, and they all have at their core this identical 60% of their genome, but then this other 40% varies entirely between everything we collected, which is way, way different than animal species. Humans differ from each other by about 0.1% or 0.05% of their genome, you know, humans and mice vary by like maybe 1% or so. If the difference between a human and a mouse is 1%, but the difference between two streptococcus infections can be 40%, what does that mean in terms of defining species? So anyways, it's a long answer to the question. Yes, DNA sequences are being used now to try to help define species. Yeah, you mentioned briefly in there that they're doing it differently for bacteria than for animals. First of all, I mean, some of that was, that's amazing. The 40% difference is fascinating. But I'm also curious, I don't actually know offhand what animal encompasses technically. I'm under the impression it does encompass bacteria. I don't, does it encompass, I don't think it encompasses plants, but maybe it, it does. Um, your impressions are, are wrong. Whoa, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> um. The definition has changed even since I've been alive, like in the past 25 years. So you used to hear about kingdoms of life, like the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, this sort of thing. And they've since created a broader category called a domain. Mm -hmm. And the two domains are called prokaryotic and eukaryotic. And now within the prokaryotic domain, there are two kingdoms. One is called the bacteria and one is called archaea. And those are two examples of single-celled organisms. And then in the domain of eukarya, there are four kingdoms. And those kingdoms are protozoa, fungi, plants, and animals. So to answer your question, animals by any classification are distinct from plants, fungi, protozoans, bacteria. Okay, well, that's helpful. Great. 
I don't know why I thought I had heard that bacteria were counted as animals, but it does make much more sense that they're not. The other thing I thought was interesting about what you were just saying was that you mentioned that there's a very small difference between humans in percentage of the genome that's different, but is that comparable in terms of total number of genes? Do you know offhand? I do know, yeah. So when you start talking about DNA sequencing, you have to sort of make a biochemical distinction. DNA is a molecule, and it's made up of these four smaller molecules called bases or nucleotides, and there's four of them. They're usually notated as A, C, T, and G. You've probably seen DNA sequences like depicted somehow like in art or movies or something that are like A, C, T, G, whatever, whatever, whatever. And so the human genome has three billion of those, of those letters, basically, or what's depicted as letters. And then small portions of those three billion are classified as genes, sort of like spaced out along that whole sequence. And there's about 20,000 of those genes. And each one of them ends up being about 3,000 or so nucleotides long. And so if you do that math quickly, you can find out that only about 1% of the genome actually encodes genes. And genes are the sections that give rise to proteins. So, I mean, you asked the number of genes, but it's important to make the distinction between the number of genes and the amount of DNA sequence as well. They're both important. That's a good point. Yeah, I meant to say base pairs. That's fine. Either way, humans have about 20,000 genes in their genome, which is made up by about 3 billion base pairs. And then, for example, the bacteria Streptococcus pneumoniae has a genome that is about 2.5 million base pairs and has about 2,000 genes. Wow. Much more efficient. Much more efficient. Yeah. In terms of the, the space that's used. Yeah. Amazing. Right. And so like one thing you were getting at is I said that what's been sort of an attempt to define bacterial species has been using this this core genome that might differ by 40% between individuals. And you're wondering how many base pairs, how many nucleotides that actually is. So like for Streptococcus, that might be something like 600,000 or 700,000 nucleotides difference between individuals. And in humans, that difference is something like 3 million or so. So in terms of the number of positions in the genome that differ, for humans, it's only 3 million out of 3 billion. Wow. Okay. Whereas for bacteria like Streptococcus, it's 600,000 out of 2.5 million. So the positions that vary are, are way more in bacteria than they are between any human individuals. In terms of percentage. Yeah. 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 In terms of percentage. So now that we've talked a little bit about what is a species, I want to go back to or, or sort of go into a little bit about speciesism. And this came up for me recently because I was reading a little bit about Animal Rebellion, which is a spinoff of Extinction Rebellion and is an anti-speciest group. I was just sort of struck by that and ended up thinking about it for a little while because I feel like in a situation in which you're worried about a climate emergency, I feel like prioritizing animal rights is an interesting project to decide to also be engaged in. I have a question. Yeah. Would anti-speciesist be opposing those who discriminate between species? Yeah. Okay. There's a sort of funny like quote about the term speciesist that Peter Singer has, where he's like, it's really unwieldy, but I couldn't think of anything better. So we're going for it. And uh, now anti-speciesism, that's its own thing. And it's not as if Animal Rebellion was my first exposure to the idea of, of trying to prioritize animals. I definitely had heard about animal rights growing up, and I was reading a little bit about some of the origins of that, because I think you know PETA is something that I've heard about and like think of as a common term that people understand to be associated with animal rights. PETA is the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. 
And there was a pretty fascinating example of when animal rights really came into the public sphere when PETA broke into a lab and took a bunch of pictures of these monkeys that were being experimented on, specifically macaques, macaque monkeys. And the pictures, if you look up Silver Springs monkeys, don't look good. It does look like the monkeys are being tortured. Those images got out. The scientist had to deal with some lawsuits. And the experiment he was doing was he was disabling the feeling of the monkey in one limb and then tying down its other limbs so that it had to figure out how to use this limb even though it couldn't feel the sensation from it because its motor function was still intact. So he got in some trouble and had some lawsuits to deal with, which he ultimately actually was exonerated of all his charges. And animal rights, as far as I understand it, came more into the public sphere of conversation. And then, interestingly enough, if you look into what happened to that scientist, he initially was sort of shunned for what he had done or, or sort of the reaction to it. But then later on, he used his data from that to develop a way to have people that had suffered from a stroke be able to use their limbs again. And they also dissected the macaques, and they learned a lot about brain plasticity in adults. So there were these like really interesting positive things from that. Yes, they were to some degree being tortured. And on another hand, that made some really big strides in our understanding of the brain and also our understanding of how sufferers of strokes can get better. I have one comment about that. There's an interesting parallel there that's been discussed among science ethicists about whether or not it's okay to use the data collected by German scientists between 1939 and 1944. Yeah. I think that's a, a I mean, yeah, it, it seems like a shame to throw it away. But at the same time, if it was collected in a way that you think is unethical. I think everyone agrees the way it was collected was unethical. But the question is, is what to do about it now. That's interesting. I mean, once you have the information, you almost have to choose to like get rid of it if you really don't want to use it. I, I, I think I fall on, on you, you may as well use it. I mean, especially if it can be useful. Um, yeah, that was just something that I thought of when you mentioned how these experiments from the Silver Spring monkeys were unethical, but have now led to what are used as therapies for stroke victims. I think another example is some like classical psychology experiments that wouldn't be allowed nowadays. Because we now have things like informed consent, where you have to tell people something about what they're doing in the experiment mm -hmm. in order for them to be able to consent to it. You can't just say, like, who wants to sign up for a research study? And then they sign. It's why it's called informed consent. You have to tell them something about what is going to be measured. I don't think they were doing that for macaques in the 70s when this happened. Certainly not, no. And also back then, not for human psychology experiments either. Right. Yeah. Anyways, that was just one comment I had from that. Yeah, that makes sense. So speciesism as a concept, the idea of treating certain species differently than others is older than the term speciesism. And again, just pulling from Wikipedia, it's got a bit of a history of the ideas, um, at least in terms of what's been written about it. And Wikipedia says that it sort of first showed up around 1753 with a, an author named Buffon, and he pointed out that you can tell that there are similar sensations being felt by animals as humans. And then in 1824, a man by the name of Gompertz was saying pretty much the same thing. They have similar sensations, but also that they have similar desires. And certainly it's hard to say whether or not he really knew that, but then in 1871, there was Darwin, and he pointed out that the difference between a human and an animal is really more a matter of degree rather than a matter of kind, that humans aren't separate from the animal kingdom. And sort of all of these authors imply that really what they're talking about is animals. You know, they're not referring to bacteria or plants, probably because they're just more relatable. Then in the 1890s, there's a, a number of authors that start to have discussions about, okay, well, do animals have rights? And given what we now know about evolution, 
and our close relationship to some of these animals, much closer than was previously considered, do we have a, a moral obligation to what you could consider as your extended family of sorts? And some of those writers sort of come to the conclusion that vegetarianism is the only way or is a solid way to address that moral obligation. So that's sort of some of the starting of those ideas. And then the term itself showed up in 1970, and it was used by Richard Ryder. And he is very clear about how he was just trying to induce a comparison to racism and sexism. And um, he was protesting animal experimentation. And he has this interesting quote from that time period where his thoughts seem to be framed by this idea of, quote, if all animals are on one physical continuum, then we should also be on the same moral one. And in that he's including humans as animals. And I think that's a pretty auspicious beginning for the, the term speciesism. I mean, I, I it's a pretty interesting claim to me that if all animals are on one physical continuum then we should also be on the same moral one. The idea that animals are even on a physical continuum seems a little confusing, never mind the fact that that would translate into a morality. I think it's okay to say that animals are on a physical continuum, given that we have all arisen physically from our ancestors. Hmm. Like for every animal that exists, there's been some physical material passed on from its parents. And if that goes all the way back, then yes, basically. In a way, we are all on some physical continuum. So you, you mean based on time? Um, no, I didn't, I didn't mean time. No. Or like presence based on like the amount of time that one's genes have like been existent? No, I meant like material, physical material. Oh, okay. I'm not sure I understand. Like, I guess I'm... In my mind, a continuum implies like a clear relationship between the end and the beginning and what is going to happen in between. And I feel like if you place a bunch of animals on a continuum, it does, it's not obvious to me that it looks that way. Uh, I wasn't thinking of like a number line continuum. I was thinking of like a, a branching tree. Okay, got it. Which I guess is not a continuum. If I were to think of the word continuum by itself, I would think of more of what you just mentioned, which is like a, a number line with a, a left and a right to it. I like that idea, though, that, that the continuum can be a tree, because then I agree with him much more about the idea of a moral tree. Yeah. There wouldn't be an obvious conclusion to morality. It would be more of like a, well, you know, we encountered this issue and then our morals were refined and some people refined them in this direction and some people refined them in the other. And I would think that you would end up with something much closer to a tree than a continuum. Right. I agree. I mean, yeah, having more dimensions is always an easier way to define things. I think it is interesting to try to define morality. I mean, it's a, it's a massive question that philosophers have been philosophizing about for a really long time. So I don't think we can arrive at a definition of morality. But I think morality has to have some aspect of ability, basically, like ability to perceive things as right or wrong. And so I think it's a bit strange to try to apply morality to animals, whereas it's not as strange to try to apply it to humans. I have a sense that the main reason I can't tell that an animal has a sense of right and wrong is just because I can't communicate with it. Is that sort of the crux of what you're considering as well? Or do you think that it's just actually a totally different way of thinking about life to like be a human versus to be an animal and to like have a moral construction at all? I think it's a different way of thinking about life, but I don't think it's about being human versus animal hmm. or being human versus a, a non-human animal. <laughs> yeah. I think, like I said, this has been philosophized about for a long time, but I think that morality is, is a human invention as a way to try to categorize behaviors, as a way to categorize behaviors socially. And I don't know if any animals do that. I don't know if any animals categorize the behaviors of other individuals, like intraspecies individuals, in a moral way. I suppose they do. And like the most obvious example I can think of is 
an outcast. There are examples of animals being outcast from their herds or packs or whatever. And I don't know if that's analogous to moral behavior, like why an animal becomes an outcast, but it could be a, a similar situation. Yeah, the other thing that comes to mind is I, there's a pretty small subset of animals that are willing to eat their own young. And that feels like the kind of thing where if most of the animals have decided, like, no, that's definitely not food, there's some kind of construction there about behavior and, and what's expected. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that most animals don't do that. But there are a lot of animals that eat other animals' babies because it's a, it's a good food source and, and they, they're pretty easy to catch, especially if they're inside an egg. Did you say they're a good food source? <laughs> yeah. I, I thought when you said good that you were referring to easy to catch, but then you said that separately. So what about eating a baby is good as compared to an adult? Well, for the example of eggs, they're a very contained source of nutrition because the egg has everything that the the zygote needs to transform itself into a, a hatchling. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like another thing that comes up with morality is this idea of responsibility. There's some idea of if we're going to include animals in our moral sphere and as a result assign them rights that we normally are so far typically reserved for ourselves, then it seems to imply a level of responsibility related to that. And I don't really know how to have a rapport with those animals. I mean, to your own point, there are outcasts in the animal kingdom where they must have a rapport with their tribe or their group, and then they fail to maintain it properly or, or something happens with that. But I just don't have a way to, to do that with an animal that's in a different species. So I'm not quite sure how to assign or try to share my conception of what rights I think a human deserves to an animal, given that I don't feel like I can communicate with the animal to find out what, like, what it wants, what its preferences are. That being said, I think there's some obvious things that do make sense as rights to afford animals. And there's some ideas that often people are very against in sort of like a visceral way that are considered to be speciesist. And some of those include factory farming, animal slaughter, uh, blood sports like bullfighting, the taking of animals' fur and skin, and experimentation on animals. And those ones, I think I'm mostly on board with trying to reduce or entirely get rid of. But according to Wikipedia, some of the other things that are included in this are also the refusal to help animals suffering in the wild due to natural processes, and the categorization of certain animals as invasive, and then killing them based on that classification. And I read that, and I was a little surprised. And I had this thought that maybe natural processes was referring to things that occurred as a result of human intervention in the environment. But then when I looked into it, it said like, oh, no, some animals are just hungry out in the wild and like we should be doing something about that. And I thought that was a bit of like an extension that I wasn't really willing to, <laughs> to go for in terms of trying to protect other animals. I agree. I'm also not willing to go for that one. For one thing, it seems impossible. And for another thing, it seems undesirable. What do you mean? I guess I, sh I should say that to end the suffering of all wild animals seems undesirable. Okay. Why do you say that? Well, for one thing, I think the only way to achieve that would be to domesticate them. I don't really see how you can have wilderness areas and not have animal suffering. Meaning like, unless you're controlling every aspect of the animal's days, how can you ensure that they're not going to suffer? Yeah, I agree. I think it's difficult in my mind to extend it that far. It seems like a problem with the way in which life plays out on Earth more than it is a problem with how humans treat animals. Right. And I wouldn't call the first one a problem. Yeah. I would just say that it is the way that life plays out on Earth. 
I actually thought the next the next example, the the categorization of certain animals as invasive and then killing them based on that is sort of an interesting like hybrid of those things. Because yeah, if an animal can get to a space, then it's there. Should we leave it alone? Or if we're the ones that put it there, are we somehow obligated to help the animals that already existed in that space resist this new animal? I don't really follow exactly how that speciesism, but I do think it's an interesting question. I agree it's an interesting question, and it, it has a lot of like uh, uh, t- tendrils to other, <laughs> to other interesting questions as well. Like, it's been the case forever that if a new species arrives in some ecosystem and it can outcompete some species that are there, that it will become the dominant species in whatever niche it's competing in. Like if there was an ecosystem where all the trees were only 10 feet tall and then some new seeds came over in the wind and this new tree was able to grow to 14 feet tall, it's just going to happen that the 14 foot tall tree is going to thrive and the 10 foot tall tree is going to not thrive, like reduce in numbers. Yeah, but somehow if humans have done that, the way it's worded, right, it's not a natural process anymore. If a human were to take a seed and put it somewhere else, instead of it, you know, riding on the fur of a deer, then that's no longer the same thing. Now, like, I've messed with the process, and now I've introduced an innovation species, and I should try to manage that environment accordingly. Yeah. Well, according to what you read, the natural processes idea was part of the the previous idea of animal suffering. Not part of this idea of invasive species. True. Yeah. It seems similar, though. I think it's fine to make that classification of invasive species, whether they're invading due to human activity or whether they're invading due to non-human activity. I think it's fine to make that classification. But you could make the classification of, like for the, the tree example that I said, doesn't matter whether the tree seed blew there in the wind or whether it was carried there by a bird. Is that different than being carried there by a an airplane? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got to start handing out some tickets to birds. Like you have to take care of these seeds that you dropped off. That was not cool. Clean that up. It also, to me, gets into this like much larger question about trying to preserve the world in a certain state. Mm. Like different species have been evolving and becoming extinct and moving around the world forever by many processes. And so I don't know to what extent it matters that humans are intervening in those processes. Like if you want to call a species invasive, does that mean that it didn't exist in a certain area 50 years ago or a thousand years ago, and now it does and therefore it's invasive? How do we want to define that? Do we want to define that? And if so, do we want to control that so that there's only species in certain areas that were there some number of years ago? Yeah, it seems hard to take the human-centered aspect out of it. Like if a human accidentally takes a seed on an airplane and drops it off somewhere else, and there's not really like a way to tell if that's good or bad except based on human preferences, which I think is interesting because it seems like part of the argument against speciesism is that we should value the preferences of non-human animals similarly to the level at which we value human preferences. But it just seems like there's no way to know that. Like, we only know our own preferences. Only we can have a conversation about what we even think the animals would preference and, like, what an environment wants in terms of the species it has and whether or not they're invasive. And so the whole discussion is inherently human-centered anyway. Yeah, I mean... You lost me a little bit about saying what an environment wants. That seems that seems pretty. Uh... <laughs> I guess what the animals in the environment want. Like, do you go around and pull them all? You know, in terms of the invasive thing, how do you decide? Yeah, that, that's a bit of a different question. I just think that what an environment wants <laughs> is a pretty nonsensical statement. <laughs> I think you can tell a little bit what some animals want just by observing them. I mean, some part of this whole discussion is about animal research, research done on animals. 
And certainly some of that research is about what animals want, or in a lot of cases, using what animals want in very defined situations as a proxy for what humans want, like doing research on animals as if they are humans and then extrapolating that to human psychology. Hmm. But if you just, if you watch an animal, you can see what it does based on different stimuli and you can infer things about what that animal wants. I think that's sort of the level at which I'm willing to afford rights to animals. Like I feel pretty confident that cows don't want to be factory farmed. So I feel like it's reasonable to like try to not do that to them. I agree. Yeah. But on a similar vein, I'm also like, I don't know how badly humans want to go work in offices. Like that doesn't... <laughs> the, I don't know. Yeah. When I observe human behavior, it seems like they love working in offices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm including myself in that in that group. Yeah? Yeah. If I observe myself, I might conclude that I love working in an office. Mm. Most of the time, or some of the time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I guess that's tough to argue with. I'm not saying that I do love it. I'm just saying, like, if someone were to observe me, they might conclude that I love it based on the frequency with which I do it. Yeah, and I think even in my own life, I am like, oh, I don't want to be on a computer that often, but that I am. Obviously, I am confused about <laughs> what I'm going for here. <laughs> I think especially right now, I feel like it's almost necessary for interacting with others. Right. Yeah, I feel like I'm getting way off topic. I think it's still on topic. One thing I was going to say about cows is like, you can see how differently cows act when they're in a factory versus in a field. In a factory, they just stand there. In a field, they jump around and stuff sometimes. <laughs> I've never seen a cow jump except in, in a storybook when I was very young. I'll send you a video. <laughs> wow. That's exciting. And I feel like you could, you could use the same sort of uh, experimentation or observation about humans in offices versus not in offices. Hmm. One example of this, maybe it's not the greatest example, but um, about a month ago, you were visiting me and I went out for like a 10 minute bike ride to go to the grocery store. And then I came back and you seemed to think that I was really happy about that. And you told me that I love biking. Yeah. You were visibly happier. Right. I think you could use that same sort of observational criteria to find out what animals want. Not all animals, like not earthworms, but maybe some animals. <laughs> maybe earthworms too. I just don't know enough about them. But certainly like one really good example I think is dolphins. Mm. I've seen dolphins play basically. And I'm sure if you put them in a, a factory dolphin farm that they wouldn't play as much. <laughs> I don't want to work in a factory dolphin farm. You don't have to. Oh, thank God. <laughs> I think this brings up an interesting point, too, because some of the things we just pointed out, it's like you can tell that an animal can experience joy. And I feel like that plays a big role in which animals we decide to value when we're trying to pick the next species to sort of like try to include in this. You know, cows are, at least to some folks, uh, fairly cute. But despite the fact that mice are killed in like very large amounts and experiment on extensively. I don't hear a lot of people talking about mouse rights, whereas like getting cows and pigs at a factory farms is like a pretty big topic of discussion. So I'm curious about whether or not that capacity to like see that the animal is experiencing joy plays a role in how well we can identify with it. I think it certainly does play a role in how we identify with it. Yeah. And I was taking it a step further, which is we can see what the animal wants, or we can use that as a way to find out what animals want. But for sure, it's still human-centric, but the more human-like, the more things like human emotions, human actions that an animal does, the more humans will identify with it, for sure. So one really common presentation of the lack of internal consistency with speciesism and, and the way in which we treat different species of animals is the way that we treat cows versus the way that we treat dogs. And the assumption is that it's sort of the average cow, which is almost certainly growing up on a factory farm, and the average dog, which is probably being fairly well pampered. It doesn't have to figure out where it's going to get its food from. It gets medical attention 
the comparison is pretty stark for two animals that don't seem like they're inherently that different, except that one we decide that we're going to eat and the other one we have around for our own pleasure. It seems like for those two animals, we're describing two animals that we use a lot, like for our own benefit, for eating or for, for enslaving as pets for our own pleasure. So I'm wondering, are there any animals that have interacted with humans and been better for it? Or would the best strategy for any animal in terms of th that animal species' well-being be to not interact with humans or be ignored by humans? The first thing that comes to mind is the panda. The giant panda? The giant panda, yeah. I don't know. I mean, they might be dead if they hadn't interacted with humans. They don't seem to care that much about producing offspring. Is it better to be alive than dead? <laughs> i'm gonna go with yes for now all right yeah yeah <laughs> if i was a giant panda i don't know i mean i think alive and dead might be different than extinct and not extinct that's true those are different <laughs> yeah they never that was never mentioned like if someone would prefer the slings and arrows or the bodkin, there's not a third one, which is like, you know, nuclear annihilation of all humans. Do you think we should update that one? Yeah, we should, we should, we should get William right on that. <laughs> Dearest William. <laughs> Please update your soliloquy to include nuclear annihilation of all humans <laughs> as one of the choices. It should not be a binary choice. It should be a trinary choice. To be or not to be or <laughs> annihilation. I'm surprised that's not included in not to be, but... It could be. It is a bit poetic. He could have been trying to include that in not to be. Do you think that there's any animals that are better for having interacted with humans? Uh, the first one that came to mind was the bald eagle. There weren't really that many of them, but then they were put on this pedestal. And also like coins and flags and stuff. And now there's a lot more of them than there used to be. And they're protected by like pretty strict laws. Although I don't know if you could say that they're better. We're sort of ignoring them now by law. I mean like you, like you can't really interact with the bald eagle. It's sort of against the law to interact with the bald eagle. Hmm. And so maybe they're better, but maybe they're just like what they would have been if they never had interacted with humans. <laughs> so e equal or better. Yeah. The bald eagle. Given the number of species that I suspect are worse off, I think equal is doing good. Yeah. If the whole idea that, you know, an eagle is getting protected and then it can produce more offspring and then spread a little bit farther and then also ends up on flags and then all sorts of other media. Uh, I feel like the cat is doing quite well. It dominates a corner of the internet and also <laughs> is in all sorts of environments where it just has no business being whatsoever. Right. As we mentioned in our very first episode, one way to define how successful something is, is the biological definition of fitness, which is how many viable offspring are produced. And so I don't know this for sure, but I, I think it's likely the case that cats having been domesticated has increased their numbers far more than they would have been in the wild. Like, I imagine that there's probably way, way more domestic cats than there are wild cats. Yeah, I definitely want to agree with that. I also have no idea. But yeah, I think that's right. And so judging only based on that criteria, cats having interacted with humans has, has made them more successful than if they were ignored by humans. That criteria is kind of interesting, too, because I feel like it almost implies that, like, there's this uh, unspoken so far in there. I mean, if somehow the interaction with humans ends up in a place where all cats die or all the bald eagles die, then maybe it wasn't so good. Yeah. All right. I have a couple of questions for you. Okay. Uh, I'm ready. If you were going to build yourself a table and you were looking for raw materials for this table, what species makes the best raw materials for the table you want to build. Would you look at the Romerolagus diazzi or the Quercus alba? Do I get any hints? I'll give you a hint. 
Okay. Uh, a Quercus alba is an American white oak tree. Mm. Okay, I would probably choose that one, unless the other one makes better tables. <laughs> um, I don't know. The Romero Lagus diazzi is also known as the volcano rabbit, and it's a small rabbit that resides in the mountains of Mexico. It's a small rabbit, so probably not a very... Yeah, usually like a higher table. Yeah, I think I'd go for the oak. The oak seems like it would be taller. Okay, yeah. I would do the same thing, because I'm also a, a discriminatory speciesist. <laughs> All right, so finally, based on what we've discussed so far about species and speciesism, do you think that it's reasonable to attempt to value all species equally? Not really. I th I think maybe there could be a time. I, no, I, I actually I can't even really imagine a time where that's ever viable. But I do like the idea of trying to slowly expand out what rights we afford to animals if you know our other issues are reasonably taken care of. If it's like we have so much that we can produce enough for ourselves and we don't need to enslave and kill large numbers of cows, then like I'm down for that. But I think the idea of getting to a point where we value all species equally, that just seems – I think I am interested in animals having rights, but I don't see how to get to the sort of conceptual endpoint of trying to value the preferences of other species in the same way that I value the preferences of members of my own. But I don't know. What do you think? I see. Spoken like a true speciesist. <laughs> That's such a <laughs> such a smooth word. <laughs> I'm a true speciesist. <laughs> um, I concur. I think it's a bit. Uh, well, I shouldn't say a bit. I think it's completely impossible to value all species equally, especially if we include some of the interkingdom comparisons that we've discussed like rabbits in yeast and bacteria. Great. Yeah? Yeah. Great. You just listened to the recorded internet broadcast. I'm Tim, and always make sure to inoculate your yeast with Canadian geese. And I'm Jared, and remember to make sure you're on the right side of the moral continuum. Our producer and editor is Juliana. Any notes, references, and corrections for this episode can be found in the show notes and also on our website at recordedinternetbroadcast.com. Please send your fan mail to recordedinternetbroadcast at gmail.com. We're glad that you listened to our show. Okay, thanks. Bye. I just really liked the word chronospecies, and I wanted to say chronospecies at some point, which I guess I now have. We'll see what happens with that. <laughs>